I'm excited to be with you. I'm going to be addressing a, a, a tough subject this morning as we finish off a very short two-week teaching series called Birds, Bees, and the Bible. Anybody guess what we're talking about? Uh, I, again, this week, it is PG-13, and don't feel bad if you've got a young person you got to step out. Uh, I do encourage high school and even middle school students. I've got a portion of the message that I really want you to hear from. And so thank you guys for being here. Uh, we say it every week, if you came into this space and you're new here, welcome. We desire to be a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. And so wherever you're at spiritually, thank you for being here. I, I do want to address, when we talk about an issue like that, for some, uh, when you hear that phrase, hospital for sinners, your understanding of that is more like the morgue for sinners, <laughs> right? Like a hospital is a place you go to get healing, to get health and to change, and so our goal is not to be sinners who remain in sin and die spiritually, agreed? And so this morning, we're going to be uh, addressing some tough stuff. And please hear the heart of that is compassion and desiring us to find healing in the area of sex and sexual intimacy. Didn't Pastor Kathy do a phenomenal job last weekend showing us the beautiful gift of sex within marriage? This week, uh, we intended to address issues of singleness on the, the issue of sexual intimacy. And I'm going to be addressing a number of things, but it, I realized last week I told you I was going to get real practical. And, and, and typically when I say something like that, it means I'm, we're going to like go through all the scriptures and where you see, you know, sexual immorality in scripture. We're going to talk about that particular issue. And I'm going to address a few of those things. But I realized that wasn't the biggest thing that helped me in my own life. See, when I was a young man, 19, I came to Christ. It was a radical life change. Many of you heard that story. I was in the fraternity house and went from throwing the parties to leading a Bible study in the fraternity house. And it was a pretty radical life change. Some of my friends didn't like it. Some of them didn't believe it. And I can remember at that time, there were certain things where I had issues of repetitive sin that God quickly freed me of. I don't know why, but I stopped drinking and didn't drink again until I was 21 and haven't struggled with it since, you know, seeing God really begin to bring some freedom in that area for the most part. And I'll tell you, even in the area of, uh, of my language and the way that I would talk about people, like if you heard me like 22 years ago, you would have been very surprised by the things coming out of my mouth. And God convicted me of that pretty quickly. And I don't know why, like, I started changing that pretty quickly. But the area of lust for me did not happen quickly. It was not a radical life change. It was a process. In fact, it was many years of eventually finding some, some victory and eventually freedom. And it didn't come from just understanding what the Bible taught. It came from one thing in particular— when my desire for my relationship with God became greater than my desire for these lustful actions. That was it. Because I couldn't will it. I couldn't stop myself. It didn't matter. I would eventually turn. But when that desire changed, I was able to find freedom in Christ. And I have sense. And so I share that with you because many of us feel like we can't change. And I'm going to talk about that here in a little bit. But I believe that we can see victory and even freedom in these areas that we're struggling with in our life. If you're here and you're struggling, and we're going to get real this morning, you're struggling with lust, pornography, one-night stands, relationship breakups, 
a lot of tears shed. I, I want to tell you this morning is not to lump on guilt and shame to you, but to actually encourage you of the power of God in our life to bring a radical life change. And if you're here and you have questions about sex and even sexuality, while the majority of this morning's sermon is not about that, and if you read this sermon through that lens alone, I think you'd get very confused. But those questions, I believe that we can actually go to God and ask for help in these areas to help us understand. And if you're wondering where God is and how you could ever follow him in the way he desires, I want to encourage you that you can. And I want to start in a very odd place in scripture. For talk, the sermon on sex, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on sex where you started in Revelation chapter 21. Let's turn there. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. And as you're turning there, I want to encourage you... Uh, you know, the, the revelation of John that is captured here, it's talking about the end times and when Jesus will return and he will set the world right. And to the ones who are victorious, meaning they stayed in the faith and surrendered their life to the lordship of Jesus and believed that he was crucified and rose from the grave and repented of their sin and invited the spirit of God into their life, that they will be eternally in heaven with them in the new heaven and the new earth. And in Revelation 21 verses 1 to 4, it addresses that. Are you ready to study God's word, church? Come on, it says this, Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That's a weird place for that image. Would you agree? Yet there's this analogy throughout the New Testament of marriage, humanly speaking, being a glimpse or representation of the greater relationship we are meant to have with God. The church in the New Testament is the bride and he is the groom. Jesus is the groom. And that there is this intimate relationship, not talking about physically, that we would understand marriage uh, now, but talking about this deep relationship that you cannot find anywhere else in human relationships. Verse three, he goes on and says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, or I love the old school, it says, behold, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If you are here and like Kathy shared last week, there has been pain, there has been sadness in this area of your life. If you're here and you've had your heart broken and you have gone through a broken relationship or even a divorce and this area of romantic love has been such a struggle for you, if you are here and you are single but you don't desire to be and you long for these things and it brings about a lot of pain and suffering, you're like, God, why? I want to tell you this 100 years, if you're lucky, on this planet is just a dot in the long line of eternity. And that if we're going to address how to live as Christians, we must first understand where we're going, that this isn't home. That our eternal home, where we will spend eternity, that we really believe as Christians that one day Jesus will return, the dead will, will rise first, and those who know Christ will go to be with him eternally in the new heaven and the new earth, and the old order of things will be passed away, and there will be no more tear or pain or suffering. And every aspect of our lives, including in this particular area, it changes the way that we live now. It changes uh, the way that we think about what this life is really about. See, what I want to talk about this morning is where our desires are. 
See, I, was, I told you we get real practical, and I, what I would normally teach is like, what does the Bible teach on sex? And, and we did a little bit of that last week. We talked about the gift of sex, the covenant relationship between one man, one woman. We talked about that it looks like that God created it, and that actually uh, we believe he, he's the one that made it pleasurable, meant to draw humans together and to procreate. Right after it, he says, go be fruitful and multiply. And that in a sinful, broken world, the reality of that doesn't always occur but that we are to understand the Bible teaches these things, that it is this beautiful thing. And I've taught that a number of times. And it is kind of a reaction. For many years, the church was afraid to talk about sex and sexual intimacy. And so for the last 10 years, we have been very forthright to be saying there's no subject off the table and address all kinds of different issues within that realm. And you know what I've realized? I think sometimes, even here, we have heightened the role of sexual intimacy that greater represents the culture rather than what we read in scripture. I think we would all agree we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. All you got to do is go, turn on Netflix, look at how many of them are TV mature because of nudity. And look, I'm not telling you to go, you know, burn your CDs and throw away any movies. You know, like what I'm saying is, that in our culture, we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. And if all you do is learn about this area of your life from the culture, you're going to end up in the same place that everybody else ends up. In fact, you know, we could look at that. And for many of the students in the room, you know this better than parents. Like, you can find this stuff all over TikTok and Snapchat, Instagram, YouTube, right? Like, we can find it everywhere, and that's often what informs us in a hyper-sexualized culture about what it is. And so, when simply we send this is great gift from God, I believe that 100%, but I also want to tell you, it is not the primary reason you exist on this planet. And I'm going to get into some of the details of how I've personally struggled with that in my own life. And so, while today's sermon is not on just what the Bible says about sex, I want to encourage you today that we're going to be talking about the deed or root, where your heart is, where your desire in life most is, what brokenness and idolatry you have and your relationship with God and where we could experience his presence and we're not. We're going to get practicable about living for eternity. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you for every person. And I just, again, have to confess that I am not worthy to even give this sermon. But God, uh, I pray that whatever is not of you would be taken away and would fall on deaf ears. But what is of you, it is in your word, it is in scripture, it might speak to our soul and that we might live differently because of it. We surrender this morning and this time too. We pray in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen, amen. Told you we're gonna get real. So I get the struggle. If you're a young adult, a middle school, high school student, even a 30, 40, 50 year old and you long or even beyond long for meaningful, romantic relationship. I get it. I, can I confess? I didn't say it this way at the other services. I used to, in my young adult years, I, believe it or not, I used to work out six days a week for two hours a day on minimum. And some of you were like, good, you were a healthy CrossFitter. No, that's not why I did it. I wanted to look good. That was it. I was just wanted to look good. And because, you know, you never know when you might run into her. She, she could be there and you got to be ready. I find that we have heightened the expectation for the importance of the, this Hollywood version of sexual romance in a way that is completely unhealthy. Let me tell you how I actually did meet my wife. Didn't look good. I don't know. I slept much. I wasn't really uh, prepared. And 
I was in San, uh, TJ Maxx in San Dimas, California. Because San Dimas High School football rules. I always want to see who knows that reference. But I was standing there in line with a cart, a giant cart full of candles. Uh, because at that, I was a young adult pastor in California. Apparently, it was cool at that point. I don't know if it really was, but we thought it was. And so I had all these candles, and I hear this woman behind me in line go, Hey, what are you, some kind of candle freak? <laughs> it's like, what is going on? So I turned around. It wasn't Lisa. She would never say something like that. I turned around. And there is a woman that was, you know, probably old enough to be, to be my mom. And um, she's like, what's with all the candles? And I was like, oh, I, I'm a pastor. And it's the, you know, the, we think it's cool. And so she's like, oh, you're a pastor. Well, we go to this church just down the road. Have you met Lisa? And so I get introduced to Lisa in line at TJ Maxx. Little side note, that woman was actually Lisa's ex-boyfriend's mom. Just saying, we're being real this morning, right? Some of you got some stories. Well, I, I want to tell you, like, that's kind of how that relationship began. And both of us came into that relationship having tried to live apart from God in that area of our life. And then attempting to try and live for God in that area. And here I was, I was longing for this godly woman that wanted to put God first and that we wanted to be together just like Rashad talked a, a few weeks ago. And I was like, here she is. And then, then we started dating seriously. And, and, then, and then we started to struggle a little bit in that area. And I was like, I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. I, yeah. So we sat down and we had a conversation. And I, this had been a, a history in my life. And I said, we both know that this isn't healthy. So like, what are we going to do? And so uh, we made this rule because we hadn't, you know, struggled in the ways that you, some of you would think were serious, but it was lust. And so we said, you know what? We're not going to kiss again until the wedding. Some of you are like, that's nuts. What's wrong with you? Look, I'm not telling you to kiss dating goodbye. I'm not telling you that you should even ever do that, okay? But we felt personally convicted in our life with our stories that we were going to need some very firm boundaries. And so we did that, and we didn't kiss again until the wedding day. It was a great kiss, by the way. Fantastic kiss. But I, I share that with you because I would have never thought that was possible. And some of us, we feel like, oh, man, I just have these desires and needs, and I just can't. And I just want to encourage you, give yourself a little grace if you slip up and make a mistake, know that the Savior of the world is not hanging it over his, your head. He invites you to be honest with what's going on in your life. And then over time, it leads to change. And the way it led to change was I had to get serious about studying God's word and like going to him first for my desires to be met. Like, that's weird. No, it, it, it really, for me, like my, I didn't want things to break this relationship I had with the creator of the universe. And, and as we began to do that, it started seeing some changes. And so I think the first thing that I, I think we have to admit that we've got our desires a little messed up of what's the, of primary importance and not trusting that if God is our primary desire, he will fulfill the needs that need met. And maybe not the way that we would have wanted it, but in the way that really matters. The first point I'd like to make, if you're taking notes, and I want to share a lot of stuff, so you may want to take notes. There's a pen in the book rack, place on that card you got when you came in, but it, First one is this, Jesus' greatest desire wasn't sex. I don't know if you caught, but the savior of the world we, were all, we are all trying to be like wasn't ever married. 
was single. Some of the the great uh, works of the kingdom happened from people that didn't get married and sex wasn't a part of their life. Like, that's not me. I don't have that gift. Okay, fair enough. But I just want to remind you, if you think this is the most important thing in your life that you think about all day long, there is an issue going on there. And I'm going to talk about what we call that issue. But the word desire in the New Testament in Greek is epithemia. It means strong desire. It could be used for good or for evil. I'm going to show you some examples. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus said to them, I have eagerly desired, epithemia, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He tells the disciples, I strongly desire to hang out with you guys before this all comes. And the truth is today, with whatever brokenness you got in your life and the shame you have in this area and the things you know you clicked on online and you watched and you won't tell a soul and you will push it down deep for decades to come. He knows about it and he still epithemias, strongly desires to be with you because that's the depth of his love for you. Epithemia could be used by that. It's also used in this way. Philippians 1.23, Paul writes, I am torn between the two. I epithemia desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. That, that Paul desired, epithemia, to be with Christ. That's where his primary desire was. But he was going to stay on earth so that he could be used by God. But he just wants to be with Jesus. I didn't share this at the other services, but I read a story about this, about a, a, a person who went around the country many years ago and asked people what why their model of ministry was working and went to all these pastors and ministry leaders. And it wasn't really all that impressive until he came to one person. His name was Bill Bright. And Dr. Bill Bright started Young Life, which many of you have heard. And here's the quote. It sounded very boring, except for one visit he made to a man named Bill Bright, the president of a big ministry. Alan said he was a big man full of life who listened without shifting his eyes. Alan asked a few questions. I don't know what they were, but as the final question, he asked Dr. Bright what Jesus meant to him. This is from Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. Alan said to Dr. Bright, could not answer the question. He said, Dr. Bright just started to cry. He sat there in his big chair behind his big desk and wept. That his desire for his relationship with Christ was so emotionally deeply rooted, he couldn't even form words together. And this big man just sat there and wept. Struck me about where our epithemia should be. Jesus strongly desired to go out and to pray, sometimes through the night with his heavenly father. That's where his primary desire was. But Desire, epithemia, can also be used like this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. By the way, sexual immorality in the Greek is porneo, where we get the word pornography from. But it's a broad term to talk about all forms of things that are not according to God's standards. And, And some of you may go, well, why does God have all these things? Why should I even do what the Bible says in the first place? Isn't God just trying to ruin and wreck my life and steal all my fun? right? Come on now. Couldn't I have so much more freedom to go whatever I want to do, be with whoever I want, do however I want? Look, I think sometimes we get confused and we get into like a political mindset and, and that's not what I'm talking about this morning. You can literally do whatever you want. What I'm talking about is a Christian, if you're trying to live for, for God, that you're going to try and live in a way that honors him. And that includes in the area of sex and these particular issues. And at a young age, even that you're going to prioritize, God is my primary desire in my life. 
And that's not always easy. That can actually be very difficult. And so God's not trying to ruin your fun. In fact, I think in some ways later on in life, it can give you greater freedom. Think of it like this. Which one do you have more freedom with? If you're playing up on a high mountain cliff where you could fall off the edge and die, or if you're playing on that same cliff and there's a fence around the edge so that you can enjoy your time and play and not worry about falling off. See, I believe God is really trying to help us to actually have a more meaningful life. And when we've, in a hypersexualized culture, place so much meaning and purpose on this thing, we've gotten it out of order for what it is meant to be. It goes on and says that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, Paul writes, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Passionate lust there is the word epithemia. The same way that we could desire to be with God and he desires to be with us, that we can give in to these false presumptions about meeting our desires and other things. And we see people in our culture all the time, we've all done it at times, where we look for fulfillment in something that only God could bring. And we turn to this video and we turn to this person and we turn to this thing because we don't feel whole and we don't feel complete and we need you to complete me. Come on now, Jerry Maguire. But instead, only Christ can complete us in those deep, meaningful ways. And that's what I'm going to end with this morning. But some of you say, he is trying to ruin all my fun. No, Psalm 37, 4, he wants you to have the desires of your heart. Look what Psalm 37, 4 says. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. He wants to give you the desires of your heart, but what's the first thing you have to do? Take delight in the Lord. Because when you make him your first desire, the rest begins to fall into place. And what I found in my life, when I focused on like, I'm going to pray and study his word, and when I'm struggling, I'm going to turn to him, it's crazy how it began to change aspects of my life. And I want to be very clear. We said we were going to be practical, and when we talk about a hypersexualized culture, we're talking about a culture where sexual intimacy is not within marriage, where sexual intimacy is freely given, and it's about pleasure and enjoyment alone. And the Bible says that this form of sexual immorality is the only th- one of the only things that I know of in the New Testament and talks about in the letter to the Corinthian church that we should flee from it. It's that dramatic. You say, well, all sin is the same. Well, all sin is forgiven by God and all can be forgiven. But I think we would agree the consequences of murdering a human being and the consequences of thinking of a, a, a little lie in our mind are not the same consequences that all sin can be forgiven, but all sin has the same consequences. And it's very clear in Scripture, sexual immorality has a little more dramatic consequences, not like murder, but more dramatic consequences than many other areas of struggle in sin in our life. And so if we delight in him, he will give us the desires of our heart, but we have to trust him. And the truth is, can I be real for a second? Sometimes in my life, not just on the area of sex, but like sometimes in my life, I, like especially the last year and a half with everything going on, sometimes I'm like, it'd just be easier if I didn't do this. It is easier, by the way. <laughs> if, if you didn't want to live for God in any area of your life, it's going to be way easier. But you won't see the fruit of what it's like to be wholly known by God and to wholly know God back and the impact it could have in your life. And you won't be living for eternity in the picture of heaven that we described. So number one, Jesus didn't, the greatest desire wasn't sex. And number two, Jesus didn't find his identity in sex. Now, I know I use a word like identity, and we will instantly jump to sexual identity. And I think I'm going to, just in a couple of minutes, mention just a few little things about that. 
That would be, I'm using this much more broadly across the board, that there should be nothing in our life that we find our identity in other than Christ first. You see, it's true. Look at where Jesus found his identity. If we're supposed to follow Jesus, if that's our attempt, look where he found his identity. Verse 21 of Luke chapter 3, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. That he finds his identity in being a son of the living God. By the way, the New Testament teaches because of the work of Jesus crucified on the cross and resurrected from the grave that we are grafted into the family of God, that you are called a son or a daughter of the living God. You can call him Abba, which means daddy, an intimate relationship with your heavenly father. Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, why is this, what does it have to do with identity? Do you know what happens with Jesus in Luke chapter four right after this? He will receive the greatest temptation of his life. He goes to the wilderness for 40 days and fasts and then is tempted by Satan in three ways, ways that we're often tempted today. And every single time he cites scripture, the word of God in response to those things that he finds his primary identity in pleasing his heavenly father because he sees that he is well pleased by him. And that would go on. Everything changes after that. He resists the temptation and he goes all through all the ministry and he knows he's eventually going to go to the cross and everything that's going to occur. But it all begins in that moment of time because he is living as a son of the living God. And that should be every Christian's primary identity. It's one of the reasons we ask the question when you're a Baptist, or when you're being baptized, is it your desire to make Jesus the primary identity of your life? We're declaring, I'm surrendering every aspect to the Lordship of God. And this is where many of us, I think, get us wrong. We get this wrong because it, we, we heighten the role of sex or even sexuality to the point that it's like the most important thing. And we say things like, well, I deserve to have this, or come on now, some of you in the room, even the married couples in here, you're like, I have needs, right? Like, I have... Uh, the Lord gave me this desire. I wouldn't, if it wasn't going to be met, and like I get all of that, but I want to tell you it's not ever meant to be the first desire, the primary desire, the one thing you make all decisions about in life. That's not the way that Jesus lived. No one should find their identity in a romantic relationship, regardless of attractiveness. Our relationship with God is meant to be where we find our identity. If there's something we desire more in life than God, romantic relationship, wealth, power, popularity, by the way, the temptations that Jesus was tempted with, car, house, whatever it is, the job, the promotion, whatever it is you long for and you work for most in your life, if any of those things are more important than your desire for your relationship with God, what do we call those things? Idols. It's idolatry. In the Old and New Testament, that's not really a debatable thing. Anything that is placed before God in our life is called an idol. And if we're going to get real about this, I think we need to be honest that our boyfriend or our girlfriend or that new career or popularity or car is not the primary uh, reason for existing in our identity in life. Jesus didn't find his identity in those things. He came and found his identity being the son of the living God. 
Now I want to pause there for just a second because I realize the underlying some of this, I brought up the sexual identity thing. And I, I want to say very clearly, like Kathy said last week, while we talk about marriage between one man and one woman, we have to also say that in our culture today, young people growingly have more and more questions around those issues. And I think it is wrong of the church to not say this needs to be the safest place to ask those questions and to be heard and cared for and loved. And the reason is, if you look at the teen bullying and uh, statistics, you look at the statistics of death by suicide, it's very higher when uh, young people are asking those questions. And so you say, well, I thought you guys were a conservative theological place. Well, we are. And the reason that I am is because I I hold those biblical beliefs as the historical things that have been taught for 2,000 years, that when you look at the interpretations of those passages— that they have been interpreted the same way for thousands of years. And historically, I believe that's the best way to interpret the Bible, not just on this issue, but on every issue. And you will find uh, more, I I hesitate to call them progressive, but progressive versions of interpretation. There are many, but those who espouse those, uh, most of them have come up within the last 20, 30 years. And so for me, I think when we're interpreting Scripture, we have to go back historically and see how this has been interpreted. And so, but I also think we've heightened that role so much, but even within the church, it becomes this argumentative thing rather than how can we care and love people where they're at right now. And so I wanted to pause for a second and say a couple of things, because most people on the issue of sexuality have a loved one or a friend or a family member who is, uh, you know, may disagree with what I have shared or may be having really hard questions. They have been hurt by people. And, and please hear me on this. Uh, we, we are called to, to meet the needs and to love people where they are. But I think we have to get past the saying we can't, like disagreeing with each other is wrong. Disagreeing with each other is not wrong, right? Like we can share that and still say we love each other and be there for each other. And, and love has two parts, both grace and truth. And so I share that with you to kind of say that I wanted to address parents and students based off of what we've read about the identity of Christ in our life Parents, first and foremost, for some of you that agreed with what I've shared and you see the hypersexualized culture that we live in, uh, let's, let's remember that uh, we, we need to look out for our kids and raise them in a healthy way, absolutely. But we also need to understand our kids and hear them first without arguing or debating and, and really get to meet their needs. We need to be praying first. We need to be meeting spiritual needs first. And if, you, if you're struggling because you... You agree with what I've been sharing, but you got a family or a friend who disagrees. I want to tell you a really helpful resource that uh, I've begun to use. It's in our discipleship material. It's done with grace and truth. It's centerforfaith.com. And I don't agree 100% with what's on there. That's one of the beautiful things about it. But there are deep theological and pastoral papers and responses. There's all kinds of material. And again, uh, we can also agree and disagree sometimes. In fact, I forgot to do this at this service. I want you to do this right now. I want you to turn to your neighbor on your right or your left, tell them it's not normally like this, one. And then two, I want you to tell them it's okay if we disagree. Can you do that real quick? Some of you are like, I'm not doing it. You won't make me do anything. There's no way I'm doing it. Like, I don't know when it became like weird. I'm trying to share what I believe scripture teaches and then saying, look, we have some disagreements sometimes, but parents in a hypersexualized culture I understand the need, but let's first turn to the Lord and then really understand our kids and our students and what they're going through and enduring and where some of these uh, questions are coming from without jumping to arguments and debates. And then students, 
especially high school, middle school, young adults, college students. I, I wouldn't be a good pastor if I didn't say this, okay? I, and I don't think I've ever done this, but I just want to tell you that one thing that sociologists, from what I tried to research, could find, they had disagreements about the actual numbers and statistics, but that as a whole, they all agreed that in the last 15 years, the people uh, identifying with having these questions has grown. And that the schools today do not look like the schools did uh, even 20 years ago. And, and, and again, some of you are like fearful of that, but what I'm trying to share to the students is this. Um, you don't need to be fearful of God. He's not against you. He is for you. And, and, and what I want to tell you is that if you have questions and concerns and you really, and if you're not a Christian, okay, I get it. Like, it's very different if you are not a Christian. But if you are a Christian and you want to follow the Lord and you want to be used by him and you want to live for eternity and we want to have heaven in mind and this, this life is just a short blip and you want to try and honor him even when you don't understand it, where should you go to find how to live your life in all aspects, including the area of sex? TikTok. <laughs> right? YouTube, Snapchat, gossiping at school, on down the line. If we just took the information from pop culture, we would end up in that same hyper-sexualized context in which we started. There is only one place that we should go to for this. And look, I'm not telling you to just believe me. Go read it for yourself. But this should be the primary place. And I'm, not, I'm not trying to condemn anybody by saying this. Please, 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 please. What I'm trying to say is that if you're a Christian and you're trying to follow the Lord, God's word is meant to do that very thing. And we can educate ourselves in all kinds of ways, but if this is not the primary way, the first way, then we're missing the way that he asked us to live and where to discern how to live. And so students, please hear me on that. My heart is for you. You are going through things that even your parents don't understand and, and, and questions and concerns at schools, but you will not hear what I just said anywhere else in your life. So if I'm not saying it, who's going to say it? And, and parents, can I stop for just a second? Because we also need to realize who the enemy is here. The enemy is not our, our kids, is not the younger generation. The enemy, and look, I believe in political viewpoints and I have very strong views of the things that should be shown to kids at young ages, but those are my personal views. I will remind ourselves though, our enemy is not school administrators. The enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy, wants to be distracting, wants to confuse us. And then for those of you who agreed with what I've been sharing, once you get you, like the other side is the enemy and there's the bad people and we're the good people. Like that is foreign to the, what the gospel teaches, the way that Jesus lived. There is only one enemy, is the Hasatan, the adversary. He's the one demeaning, distracting, destroying the lives of human beings, trying to kill the Imago Dei and the image of God in our world. That's why Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's at work to confuse us and be destructive in this area of our life, to get us to turn on each other and to be devices and live out of hatred rather than out of the love of Christ. 
Which brings me to my third and final point, which might be the most interesting of all. Biblically speaking, Jesus' greatest desire wasn't sex. Jesus didn't find his identity in sex. And there's no sex in heaven. Some of you are like, that's it. I'm out of here. Some of you are like, praise Jesus. I don't know which way you're at on that. But what I want to say is that scholars pretty much agree on this. There is no sex in heaven. So don't let it break up a relationship with Jesus for eternity. Look what at Matthew chapter 22, what Jesus says in verse 29, he's responding to the Sadducees about the issue of re- the resurrection. It says, Jesus replied, you are an heir because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven, but about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, all who had passed away already. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. The point he's trying to make is real living is an eternal thing. This life of 80, 90, 100 years or less is just a short blip on the the long line of eternity. And that in this particular way, that for many of us, if sex is what you're living for, you're missing out on what heaven is actually going to be like. And some of you are like, I am so depressed now. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be so sad the rest of the week. What I want to encourage you is this is how we have messed up and distorted a view of sex. Sex was meant to bring a a husband and wife together to procreate, and we have made it into this idolatrous thing. And what I want to tell you this morning is that even for some of us, we think that we can't be happy without it. Well, you're going to have a hard time with heaven. And what I want to tell you is that heaven is so much greater than that, that every need will be met and fulfilled, and not in that physical way, but actually in a deeper spiritual, emotional, more fulfilling way, that real life, real living, we won't even understand until we get to heaven. That's why I told you I was going to start and end there in Revelation chapter 21 when it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the first heaven and the first earth that passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. This analogy that it is using, it uses it as a picture to say, I know in a covenant marriage and like your ideal marriage and the fulfillment that you pictured there, it's only a glimpse of the perfect fulfillment in every way that you will experience eternally in partnership with God. That you will feel the joy like you have never felt before. And nothing on this planet will ever compare. And we're so busy arguing and debating and getting mad because I didn't get this need met and I didn't have this thing happen. I I can't be happy without it. And we're missing out across the board. I don't care where you're at on the spectrum. Across the board, we are missing that for all of eternity, there is something way more important. That our greatest desire is to be Jesus. That our primary identity and existence isn't in the sexual life, but is in our relationship with Christ. And that when we get to heaven, we will finally be fulfilled. That's why he says, 
that God's dwelling place will now be with the people. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he wanted to walk with his people in the Ark of the Covenant that carried with him because he was always with them. They built the, the tent, the tabernacle, literally a dwelling place for God. Then they built him a house, the Beth El in Hebrew, which means house of God. Literally, he lived there. And that the crucifixion, the temple curtain is torn in two. And now our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit that God can live in with us, commune with us at every moment, at any moment right now. He can speak into your soul and everything that is going on. And no matter how much shame and guilt and fear you have and the the things you know that you shouldn't have done and the where you went and the things you heard and the way you treated people, I want to tell you that in Christ, you could have fulfillment like you've never experienced before. And if you stop running to all these false idols and turn to the living God, he could transform you. And I want to tell you in my own personal life, I have and I will continue to have to repent daily and turn to him and say, I want more of you, God, because it's easier sometimes to run away from you like uh, you see throughout the Old and New Testament. And I don't want to be like Jonah. I want to turn to him. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying for the, or pain for the old order of things has passed away. This life on earth is just a brief moment. You are intended to live eternally with God. He must be our primary desire. He must be our driving force. He must be our identity. And Christians, this means we may need to sacrifice. We may need to sacrifice, be uncomfortable, or even give something up that we value because we love him more. Not just in the area of sex, but across the board. The living for him is making him the primary desire that I am going to live for. And I'm no matter what culture teaches me, I'm going to turn to his word and say, God, use me, not out of hatred or animosity or condemn someone who might believe differently in me, but because out of love for Christ and my relationship with Jesus, I long for him. I epithemia to depart and be with Christ, but to be here is better by far because I know that Jesus is at the center of my life. If that is you here this morning, and you know, like me, your desires have gotten contorted over the years, and even in your marriages, you've made your primary desire something it should not. We should repent of that this morning and turn to the living God who welcomes us with open arms. And if you've strayed and gone away and you have struggled, the Bible teaches us in Luke that the prodigal son who squandered everything and went to wild living and did far worse sexual things than we've even described here, when he came home, the image we use is that God wrapped his loving arms around him. He said, get the fattened calf. We're having a party tonight because my son was lost and now he's found. He put a robe on his back, a ring on his finger because his identity is being the son of the king and yours is too. And you can experience new life in Christ. Will you pray with me? God, I pray right now for every human being in this room, for every person watching and attending online, God. None of us are perfect. All of us are broken. All of us have shame and guilt and struggles in this area of our sexual life right now, Lord, whether it's lust or thoughts or, or pornography or struggles in our marriages or struggling in our dating life, God, or we've tried to make this a heightened reality of what's most important. We've put this thing at the top and it shouldn't be. God, we do this beautiful thing right now and we all repent. Forgive us. Forgive us for trying to control our lives. Forgive us for not trusting you with our desires. Forgive us for not loving you with the depth of love that you love us first with. So right now in the room, if you know some specific things you need to repent of, you need to turn of, we're not pointing fingers. We're across the board, all of us, whatever it is, would you just take a moment right now and just not out loud, just confess that to him? God, uh, we, know, we know you hear us. 
I can't even understand your ways, and I can't understand heaven. I can't understand why you love me, and you love us, and what we've done with this planet, and what we've done with our lives. And so we just turn to you, God. Please wrap your loving arms around us. Don't let us live in guilt and shame and condemnation. May we be honest and open and okay that we're not okay and ask people for help, Lord. Whatever that looks like, we confess it to you and repent it of you. And then if you're here and you've never taken that step to make him the primary desire of your life, to surrender your life to the lordship of Jesus, you've turned to other false idols instead and you'd like to surrender fully to Jesus in this moment, it's the greatest decision you will make in your life, but there is a cost with it. And so if that is you, I invite you to pray this silently as I pray it out loud. God, I confess that I want to make you the primary desire of my life. I surrender every aspect of my life to your lordship. Forgive me for doing life without you. I do this beautiful thing and I repent and I surrender my entire life to you, Jesus. Help me to worship you in the high points of life and in the low points of life. All the same, we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's family said.